Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dallas Debt Discussion for July 17th. 2017, 7, 17, 17. Went over to the bank today and I was making out a deposit slip and I did that and I was like, whoa, uh, lots of sevens here. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's a lucky day. I've made a little money in the market tonight, so I don't know, maybe that was part of the luck. I don't know. But uh, I want to welcome everybody to the call. Uh, do a quick disclaimer and tell everybody, you're not going to get any legal advice here. If you want that, hang up. Go find a lawyer, pay the fee, get your legal advice, because we don't give it. How's that for a concise disclaimer tonight? Um, we we are on Dallas debt discussion, so we're going to discuss debt issues and debt-related issues for the most part. And uh, that's what we do every week, and we've done it for over eight years. So I uh, uh, hope everybody's having a wonderful summer. I hope uh, people are staying cool. I I had a conversation very briefly with somebody today uh, in Salt Lake City, and uh, she lived in the Dallas area here for uh, a period of time, and uh, she's been out there for a number of years, and she said that uh, uh, normally they get one, maybe two days a year where it hits 100 degrees out there, and uh, she said so far. I used to live there. It's not usually that hot. Yeah, well, she said so far this year they've had 11 triple-digit days and a bunch of them at 98 and 99. She says she's getting real tired of the heat. <laughs> yeah, and you don't usually so, notice it there because you don't yeah. have the humidity. I was going to say, she said the only saving grace is the fact that humidity is low. Now, you know, we're supposed to uh, start getting pretty hot here, but uh, uh, I we've had the humidity here, which has helped keep our temperatures down. But uh Anyway, um, we were talking about people. I just want to make a quick comment here, and then we're going to get going on things. I went over to the bank, and there was a lady in front of me. Uh, oh, we got somebody that came on here that oh, was making some noise, and maybe they muted out now. But uh, there was a lady in front of me at the teller's window, and uh, this woman was probably it was probably one of the shortest people I've seen in many many years many years uh, if I lifted my foot too high I could step on her head I mean I'm 64 this woman had to be no taller than maybe about 4 foot 4 wow. if she was that tall you know, in, in, and she wasn't a midget. I mean, you in, know, she, yeah. But in Michigan, you get a free ride uh, university scholarship for that. Yeah, well, huh. I don't think you get one here, but it, for it being was being under five feet. Yeah, well, oh, believe me, she could have gotten ten scholarships. Uh, but I just, I could not believe. I, I walked in there, and here was this incredibly short lady standing up at the teller window, and, and, and she she had to look up at the teller. <laughs> and the teller isn't tall. <laughs> the, the girl working there. And it was... It, it was that, her leaning out over. Uh, well, no, she was talking to her, 
But this poor gal, I, she was so short. I, I, I don't know as I've ever seen any, anybody that was that short that wasn't a midget. And, uh, or a child. Uh, well, no, a, a grown adult that was, that was yeah. that short, yeah. And, I mean, she, uh, she was an older lady. I'm, I'm going to guess she was at least in her 50s. Well, my daughter uh, went to high school with a girl named Hope. Yeah. And she was like that. She was four foot, four foot six or four foot eight, and that was her full growth senior year. And she had the shortest little legs, really, really short little legs, you know, because she's really short. But Dave, she was on my daughter's softball team, and I have never seen a runner like that one in my life. When she moved those little legs. It was like wheels. She yeah. was the fastest thing she, on two feet I she, ever saw. She made up for the short legs with the speed with which she could move them. Oh, she <laughs> did. She yeah. was one hell of a softball player. Yeah. Well, that's neat. All right. Well, as I said earlier, this is Dallas debt discussion, so we're going to see if there's anybody that uh, has any inclination to uh, – discuss debt issues tonight because that's what we're here for. This is about education. It's about helping people. And I want to mention two things. One, we talk about a website. The website we talk about is Jesse's website. That website can be reached by just opening a browser, typing in knockoutcollectors.net. That will take you right there. And you can learn all about everything that we discuss and everything that we help teach to people here. What we do is help people <clears throat> excuse me, utilize the information that's in the website. We don't try and teach people one-on-one. It's impossible. There's way too many people out there. There's only a few of us. <clears throat> we have John with us tonight, and uh, I want to say uh, hi, John. I hope you're uh, doing good, and I hope you're... Uh, arms doing well. Give us an update if you would, quick. I'm progressing very well, thank you. They took me in the torture chamber today and stretched my fingers back backwards and back and and it's it's coming along. They say it's doing good and it's the uh, the radius is set. The ulnar is the one they don't um, put plates on, and um, so that's very sore. But it's just a matter of time. And it uh-huh. will be fine. So the prognosis is good. Prognosis is good. Yep. Oh, very that good. Couldn't okay. have felt good though. Yeah. Well, for for anybody that doesn't know it, John had a little mishap. Had a youngster get in his way while he was roller skating several weeks ago, and decided to break his arm and mm. really did a job on it. So uh, mm. he's got some extra fixtures uh, that have been uh, inserted within. So, I was just happy the bone didn't per- pierce my skin. Yeah, yeah, compound really? pressure is never good. So anyway, I'm glad to hear things are going well, the therapy is going well and everything. So Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, anyway, we all start out with good news. Uh, I was going to say something else, but I'm going to pass on that. Uh, we all start with good news. If anybody has any good news... Now's the time to bring it up. You don't have to hit star eight and raise your hand like you would to ask a question, which we will do shortly. If you have any good news, uh, maybe you got a settlement check, maybe you arranged a settlement, something like that, uh, 
had a good outcome in court, or uh, maybe you have a stupid lawyer moment, and we always love those as well. Uh, if you uh, have any good news or stupid lawyer moment, let's hear it. All you got to do is speak up. Okay. Well, I'm not hearing anybody speaking up real rapidly. We, we take that any time during the call, obviously. If somebody comes on later, we can do that. Um, I have some news, not necessarily good, but, well, actually it's good. Um, I finally heard from the attorney, uh, and we actually started negotiations today uh, on the case that I filed here a couple months ago on uh, TCPA, FDCPA, and uh, actual damages. And I, uh, I had made a uh, demand, settlement demand at their request, and they responded with a wholly insufficient offer. I'm not going to talk about figures or anything, but it wasn't even in the ballpark. So I'll let them know that. And uh, now we've started the dance. So that's actually good news because, as I've said so many times, if you aren't discussing settlement, you're not going to have one because it isn't going to drop out of the sky and hit you in the head. So we finally started that process where uh, we uh, they've I've made an offer, they've made an offer, and I've told them, okay, you know, uh, they they need to come up a long ways before we're even in the ballpark, and I'll even make a counter. I just told them I'm going to stand on my uh, my offer as it was. So you know, we just have to move forward from there and. Uh, uh, see how things work, and uh, if we can't get something done here pretty soon, our 26 joint 26F report, uh, which we've already had our meeting, uh, that's done. Uh, that would be filed with the court by the 28th of this month, which is a week from Friday. So, uh, and Friday being my birthday, and I'm going to be really old at 70. So, uh, uh, I'm if if I really talk funny and sound feeble next week, you guys will oh, understand please. because because I. I went over the hill. You know, I got old the end of the week and over the weekend. So if I sound funny next week, you guys will uh, hopefully understand why. Okay, Dave, I'll send you a case of depends. <laughs> you won't be the first. No. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, if we don't have anybody else with good news... Then I'm going to say if anybody's got questions, and we already have one person in the queue tonight. Uh, if anybody's got questions, star eight is the way you put yourself in the queue. We'll answer your question, or at least try and answer your questions. And I, just for anybody new that's on the calls, and we always have people, you know, uh, new people coming on and listening in. Uh, I want people to understand, especially new people, that when Terry, John, or myself which are the moderators on this call, we speak from experience. We don't speak from, oh, well, I read this on the Internet, or, oh, well, I, I read this in a court case somewhere. Uh, sometimes we can speak from some knowledge of uh, reading something somewhere and studying because we've done an immense amount of it. But all three of us are litigators, and we have litigated multiple cases in federal court so the knowledge we have is not only based on personal experience, but it's based on a tremendous amount of study and interaction with attorneys and uh, years of learning. So we, uh, we don't know everything. We're not experts. We're not lawyers. We do, we'd never hold ourselves out to be that. In fact, I feel insulted if somebody asks me if I'm a lawyer. 
um, and I've been asked that many times in discussions with different attorneys. But uh, the bottom line is we are here to help you to share the information we have learned and gathered through our experiences and study. The only thing that we ask of you in uh, return for the help that we give you in helping educate you is that when you have the opportunity that you pass that information on to others, you have the opportunity to help someone else to educate them or possibly help them a little bit if they're working on something, do so and teach your children. Teach your children about the proper use of the courts, about how to deal with these situations because they don't get any of this education in the public fool system. And the only way you're going to get it is to go out here and acquire that knowledge. But rather than acquire garbage knowledge and a bunch of crap like this administrative stuff that some people you know, run into, and we, we've all been exposed to that. We've been there, done all, all that stuff. And uh, you, you're not going to get anywhere with it because you don't have anything to back you up. What we help people learn is to use the statutes that are on the books how to use the courts properly so that when you go into the courts, the court is going to back you up when you go against someone else. Or if someone is going against you, that you know how to properly defend yourself. Like if you have a scumbag debt collector coming after you to uh, try and take money that uh, they uh, have no right to take. If you learn how to defend yourself properly, uh, you can save yourself a lot of money, and you don't have to go and hire a lawyer that you'd pay thousands of dollars to and then have them sell you down the drain. Well, yeah, I can arrange a settlement for about 50% of, of that uh, $15,000 they say you owe. No, you don't owe a debt collector a penny. Nobody ever, ever owes a debt collector a penny. So that's what we do here. Uh, I wanted to get that out there because we haven't talked about that in a while, and I think it's very important, especially for new people, to understand that we're here to help. If we don't know the answer to a question, we'll tell you we don't know the answer, and we will try and point you in a direction of where you can find good, competent information to answer your question. But we don't know it all. We don't pretend to know it all. So. <clears throat> With all that said, oh, and the, the other thing I wanted to mention is we don't have an advertising budget. Please tell people that we're even here that Jesse's website is out there, that Terry has a call on Thursday nights. It's a Wednesday call, but she does it on Thursday. She's kind of funny about stuff like that. And every other Tuesday there's a call, and there's this call on Monday night. So there's help out here. We don't do it for you. You have to do it yourself, but we will help you do it yourself. So let's go to Southwest Michigan. You have been unmuted. Go ahead. Hi, this is uh, Nathan from uh, Michigan. I just want to say um, I want to double down on the administrative process that you were talking about. <laughs> oh, boy. I, tried, I actually joined Jesse's website, but it sounded like a big hassle. So for the new members of people listening, I joined Jesse's website. It just sounded complicated. <laughs> so I tried an administrative process, and that did not work out. So <laughs> if there's is that, is that an understatement? Just stick with this stuff. 
just stick with this stuff and, and, and take your time and learn it. You have time. I, I, I was in a big rush. If you have, you, you have probably have more time than you think, do this, learn it and do it because I just, the administrative process took me to where I would have to uh, do a lawsuit. And I'm like, how do you do that? And then I was dropped. That's where they yeah. cut me off. They didn't know how to do it. Well, the, the other, telling the you, other... you can do this and you can do that. And this isn't strictly legal and that isn't strictly right. legal. But they don't tell you how you do anything about it. And if, by some miracle, you are successful at doing whatever it is you decide to do about it, how you ever enforce the outcome. Yeah, that's that's the big thing. There's no enforcement for anything in that. The other thing is, and, and we've told people about this, and, and it bears saying it often, Terry and I, I don't know about John, but Terry and I both know personally more than one individual who has either gone to or is still in prison. We personally know people that have gone to prison for using the administrative processes. Even though they were right in what they did. Yeah, and we don't want any of you to find yourselves in that position. So just please don't do that. When, Like the gentleman said, Nathan, uh, I appreciate your comments, and the, the best thing I can tell everybody out there in relation to what you said, you know, you say, oh, it looks kind of complicated, that there is a tremendous amount of information in the website, which there needs to be because there's a bunch to learn, depending on what you're dealing with, okay? But don't try and eat the elephant in one bite. In other words, don't try and learn everything that's in there in, in three days or a week. You're not going to do it. And the best part is it's broken down. So depending on the issues you're dealing with, you can go and focus on that section in the website, learn about it, <clears throat> and then when you have questions about what you've studied and seen and listened to in the webinars and the things that you've read and the example documents that are there, that's what these calls are for. You come on and say, okay, well, I was looking at this or that and reading this, and I have a question about such and such and so and so. That's why we're here. We're here to help you sort that out when you have questions. So thank you for your comments, Nathan. But go ahead. Hey, thanks a lot. I, I just want to say, um, you know, I wish I had just stuck with uh, what you guys are doing from the beginning. I'm about six months behind, but I'm back on track here, and I'm really happy to be doing Great. what I'm doing now. But um, so my first question is, um, so I was disputing um, – federal student loans, and I'm not doing that anymore, but the one of the companies that were servicing it, I don't know what you would call it, called my girl. I live with my girlfriend. They were calling her home line. They called it two times. The first time she told them that this was not my – I have a phone, cell phone on myself. I never use her home line, and okay. they called it twice. And we have it recorded, like, well, we have it, we wrote it down when they called. Um, is that an actionable, something that we can take action on? 
Um, is John, were you going to respond? Go ahead. No, that wasn't me. Oh, okay. Um, the uh, the big thing is, was it a debt collector that was calling, or was it the original creditor? And and there there's a reason I ask that because if it's a debt collector and they're seeking to find out where you are, location information from you, they can call another party once. If they call another, uh, a different party more than once, that's an FDCPA violation. Okay, it wasn't the original. Like, originally, you know, the original, from my understanding of this, is Nelnet. So then after Nelnet, there was a national student loan. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I wish I, I should have prepared better for this. But there was another okay. company that backed them up that started calling me and sending me information. But they called my girlfriend. And I'm just like, yeah. well, so weird. they should be calling her. I mean, yeah. how do well, you get that here, information? Here, here's the thing. Here, here's what you need to look at. Whoever was calling if they were attempting to collect a debt, that when they acquired the right to collect it, it was in default at that time, then they're by law, they're a debt collector. Okay. Now, if they were trying to collect a debt that maybe they acquired, like say an original creditor sells, you know, and, and no, you know, these, these, yet. Well, okay, I'm just saying, just for everybody's benefit out here, for yours and everybody else's as well, educational. If a creditor sells a debt, which this is done all the time, banks and, and loan companies and stuff sell obligations between each other. If they are sold while they are not in default, then the new company is considered, as far as the law is concerned, they're considered to be the original creditor or an original creditor, and they're not subject to the uh, FDCPA, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Now, if, let's say, creditor A sells it to creditor B, if B, and it's not in default, if B is calling you, then that's you're not dealing with an FDCPA situation. But let's say they sell it to B, and you go into default while B has it, and then they get a hold of debt collector Z, and debt collector Z calls you, then you have FDCPA violations if they call more than once. I hope that kind of lays things out and clarifies it so people can understand, you know, how the pieces fit together. Okay. It's <laughs> that's, that's confusing to me, but um. I'll, what no? What it? What is confusing? What is confusing to you? Okay, so I had Nelnet, and from what the company that was calling my girlfriend was telling me, um, they were basically the guarantor of the loan, and Nelnet is the servicer. Okay, so, but but we, let's go back to who was the lender. The servicer and the lender sometimes can be the same, sometimes they're different. Who actually made the loan, who was the original creditor in day one when you got the loan? I, I do believe these are 
federal, these are federal, you know, um, these are federal loans. Uh, well, they're, yeah, yeah, but okay. How but are they federal? Yeah, but see, there's there's different agencies out there. There's different companies that do different things. These are details that you've got to track down, and you have to make sure that you have the the proper information. You have yeah. to know, not not make you know make an assumption because assumptions, boy, they'll get you into trouble big time. Yep. Um, you need to find out for sure who the original lender was. Okay, and I'm talking lender. I'm not talking servicer. It may be that they were servicing, and then maybe they passed off the servicing rights to somebody else. They may still be the original lender, but a servicer may be somebody else, okay? Yeah. Now, the big question in here, and this is this is real, it's important for people to understand, is what happened before the loan went into default and what happened after? it went into default. That's a very, very important dividing line for people to understand when you're dealing with the debt collection industry. If somebody acquires the right, this is very simple, just stop and think about this for a minute. If somebody acquires the right to collect, that doesn't mean they own it. If somebody acquires the right to collect a debt, once it's in default, I mean, if it went into default last week and I acquired the right to collect it starting today, I'm a debt collector by law. Period. That's <laughs> the way it is. That's the law. But if I acquired it and, you know, let's say I'm just gonna, I, I acquired the right to collect it through servicing and it's not in default, it's still current then as I'm trying to collect it, even if it goes into default, let's say it goes into default three weeks from now in the future, I'm not a debt collector because I acquired the right to collect it while it was still current. So I, I hope that clarifies things a little bit for people. It's very, very important to understand that. And, it, and when it comes to these loans that are kind of uh, passed around, sold, and <clears throat> servicers change. You get a lot of that kind of stuff in real estate loans, but you also get it in student loans, like your situation there. You you have to really drill down and do whatever investigation you need to do to find out who was there at the beginning and who uh, stepped into what position at what point in time. And the dividing line that you're looking for is what happened before default, versus what happened after default. Does okay. that help? Uh, yeah, I'll look into that. Um, okay, so I have another question. Um, I was listening to the SummerSlam on Jesse's website, and I have uh, four soft pulls from Capital One, but they've also sent, uh, you know, letters you know, offering me credit and this and that. That's, so that a, pro that's a promotional poll. That would be a promotional. Right. There, there, there's nothing you can do about those. Okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure about that. Okay. Well, and, and, and it's good that you ask because that way you get the information. You, you get it clarified and you know. 
and we've just yeah. educated the other people that are on the call and the other people that will listen to the uh, recordings in the future. Yep. And that's our purpose here. Okay. So actually, another thing actually just... there is one thing you can do, Terry. There's a website called optoutprescreened.com, and the government put it together, and it's tied with the three major bureaus, and you can opt out of receiving promotional credit offers. Then yeah. they won't do the soft pulls. Okay. Okay. And so just so you know, those those soft pulls, if you let, let's say you got four of those soft pulls on there, and you go out and apply for a car loan tomorrow, um, they don't see those. They don't affect your, uh, your now, credit. Now, let's say okay, you you can notify the CRAs. Yes. Actually, all you have to do is notifying the CRAs that you want those blocked. You want no promotional uh, data given. And now let's say you did that and you went through that website as well and you've made it very clear that you do not want any promotional stuff sent to you or your credit information, you know, contact information released to these entities and they do it anyway, then that's actionable. Okay. Now, chances are that's not going to happen, but should it happen, it definitely is actionable. Yeah, well, we never say that'll never happen because we've seen a thing or two. No. Right, <laughs> No, we're never going to say that certain things won't happen. Uh, no, no, no. Any Anything's possible in this day and age. Exactly, just like that insurance company. We've seen a thing or two. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have one more hypothetical. If I owned a, um, go ahead. If I owned an LLC, this is complete. We're changing lanes here. If I owned an LLC, and um, I had a friend of mine sign up for it with me. And I had a personal property trust take over it from my friend. Um, what what are the the tax responsibilities for the person? Like, would if I owned the LLC along with a personal property trust, what would be as the tax? As long as it's a holding company and it doesn't do business, there is no tax implication. No, but what if it is? What if I do contract work on the side, and I've asked this question uh, around this before, but um, I do contract work, so I'm thinking about just opening up an LLC. I'm just trying to figure out how to lower the, the, the tax ramifications of it. Um, and if I had a friend of mine own it with me and then replace them with the personal property trust, with the um, the income, would you you would still have to pay the LLC taxes? Is that the, at the end of the year? Does your state have um, uh, have a personal income tax? I I believe I'm in Michigan, so I believe it does. Yeah, it does. Okay, all right. And does your state have a corporate income tax? Yeah, I, I I would 
I believe so, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Well, tip, typically with a limited liability company, first thing I'm going to say is you do not want to use the same limited liability company for asset protection as far as holding no, no, no. personal property or cars or boats or airplanes or anything like that. You don't want to do business with, with something that's holding things. You know, a holding company is just for holding assets. That's all it does. It doesn't make any money, doesn't do any business, doesn't do anything. So you want to form a completely separate limited liability company with the purpose of doing business. You don't have to list unless your state law, and you can read it, says that you can only have um, natural persons be the members uh, you should be able to list a personal property trust down as a member. Okay. Uh-huh. And um, so then it comes down to the income. And with a limited liability company, if you're doing, you know, not a huge amount of business where it could be uh, where you might have to pay taxes as an S corporation, you just fill out the uh, uh, simple income form that goes with your your income tax. You know, it's like 1099 income. Yeah, the bottom line here is we're we're getting to a, a kind of a uh, a interesting area. We don't get into giving tax advice. Right. Okay. There's no there's no tax advice there, but if you look it up, you'll see yeah. that's that's the case. Yeah, when when you get into taxation issues, if you got questions, uh, that's okay. time to go talk to your accountant or find is an there, accountant. Yeah, I understand that. And uh, is there a resource that you can point me to to get informa- more information on, you know, as a uh, someone who makes money, uh, you know, on contract work? About just how to uh, the best way to set up an LLC, uh, an accountant, tax. because yeah. you're concerned with yeah. taxes, you need to talk to a small business accountant. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That's all. You're very welcome. All right. Oh, there's good questions there. All right. Let's go to guest seven. We have to mute you and unmute you, which I just did, so you're up to bat. Go ahead. Hi, Dave, Terry, and John. Thanks for taking my call. I have two questions this evening. The first one is I've been over Terry's webinars many times, and there's still at least one thing that I'm having a terrible time really grasping in regards to the 1681 IA and and S2B. And my question is, what exactly is a failure to investigate? Like, what exactly am I alleging that they did not do? Terry? I'm sorry, I was talking and I was muted. (laughs) (laughs) You learned that from Jeff. Yeah, I'm thinking about (laughs) Jeff too much, right? Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately we lost Jeff just, just a year ago. Yeah, he's really been on my mind the last few days, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, failure to investigate. When you file a dispute, okay, and there's a lot of different reasons for filing a dispute, but let's say, 
for explanation's sake, your reason for dispute is that it's not your account, you don't know anything about it, and you want it removed. Okay? Let's say, just like what I did, it's a debt buyer, they're putting stuff in your credit report that isn't yours, and you dispute it. Okay? Now, the dispute follows a normal procedure. The CRA send them the ACDV and let them know that uh, you have disputed it and let them know the reason you have disputed it. And the debt buyer comes back with, uh, oh, well, you know, we checked it and it's accurate, verified. So Mm -hmm. the CRA accepts what they say on the return ACDV, and they send you a response. And in that response letter, it states they have completed their investigation and the results are below. And you look below and it lists the things you disputed. And next to that one, it says verified. Okay, Mm -hmm. now, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they could not have investigated. Why? Because if they did, they couldn't have verified it. Right? Right. Because it isn't yours. You know it isn't yours. There can be no evidence anywhere that says it's yours because it's not. That's a guarantee that they did not investigate. Either one of them. The the, uh, furnisher, who is the debt buyer in this case that we're talking about, or the CRA. Or let's say your dispute was um, account paid in full. You know for a fact, and you can even prove it, that that particular account was paid off four years ago. And yet here's this debt collector putting stuff in your credit report, claiming there to be a balance owed to them on something that you know was paid and closed and no longer exists. So that's your dispute. Again, they do the same thing. They send the ACDV, the collector gets it, and they do their response, and in their response, all they do is look at their own records, which is the very data you're disputing in the first place, and they say, yep, that's what we said, so therefore it must be true, and they verify And the CRA accepts it, and they tell you it's verified. It belongs to you. It stays, or it's updated. They might say updated if they added the tagline, uh, consumer disputes this debt, okay? But, again, you know a thousand percent that they couldn't have investigated. Because if they did, contact the original creditor, which is, by the way, an investigation, they would have been told, oh, that was paid off in full and closed by the consumer years ago. So you've got them on a failure to investigate. If any result comes back that you know to be false, then you know they didn't investigate. That's a failure to investigate. So the CRA isn't required to send you any sort of documentation? No. 
Okay. They are only required to respond, to carry out an investigation, a reasonable investigation. And, in fact, the uh, burden is higher on them than it is on the furnisher because, ultimately, they are the ones disseminating this information to third parties, not the furnisher. Okay? And the law used to only cover the, C- the CRAs until the FACTA, and uh, 1998 also um, amendments to the FCRA. Up to that point, only the CRAs were responsible at all. Well, it broadened it out to include the furnishers, all furnishers, in the obligation to conduct a reasonable investigation. But that did not lessen the obligation of the CRAs. In fact, it heightened it. So CRAs are not supposed to just accept whatever the furnisher says. For instance, let's say back to the same uh, scenario. You dispute something on your credit report because you know it isn't yours. Mm -hmm. And you uh, actually do have evidence of uh, identity theft. And there is a police report Okay, we're just just assuming. So you send, with your dispute, a copy of the police report and uh, any other paperwork that you have that shows you're a victim of identity theft, and you attach that to your dispute, okay? Now, you know because it's in your possession, and they know because you sent them a copy. But rather than transmit copies of what you sent to the furnisher, they just do the usual and have their computer take care of everything. And the computer sends a standard ACDV, and it's a type 1 dispute, not his or hers. And the furnisher doesn't get told that not only was it identity theft, Proof has been provided. And so the furnisher, again, on the other end, the computer does all the work. No investigation. Computer checks its own records against itself, responds back to the CRA. Yep, yep, that's him. It's his. Verified. The CRA, knowing better, because you sent them the documentation along with the letter, but no human read it. The computer was doing everything. So they send you the response, verified. Well, now the CRA is majorly nailed because they were given concrete evidence of the dispute and they failed to investigate at all. Now they have done what the law says they can't do and simply relied on the furnisher's response when they knew all along it was false. Okay. So let's say, for example, if you, let's just say you have a debt collector on your credit report and you don't know for sure if it's yours or not. It's possible that it is. It's possible that it's not. And right. you dispute it. Then if they come back with verified, then it's quite possible that they did investigate it and it was verified. 
Well, okay. <laughs> Possible, I but I wouldn't say probable. Even no, if you can begin I to say either. that. No. Okay, now, now, okay. You see something on your credit report, and you're not absolutely sure what it is, but there's a possibility that there was something years old that maybe that was it, or you know, mm-hmm. some collector picked it up, and you know, I can see how that could happen. <clears throat> but here's my question. Unless you know for absolute positive sure that something is yours or is correct on there, how can you say so? You can't. So when you dispute something like that, and of course you should dispute it, instead of stating, does not belong to me, you're going to say um, in in your dispute, unknown account. Consumer possesses no information or knowledge of this account. That would be the dispute. Now, is it true? Yes, it's true. Because you really don't know. Now, if they come back with verified what did they verify the data that you disputed okay mm-hmm. so at that particular time that's one of those situations where i would do a direct dispute as well with the furnisher and demand account level documentation okay because like like dave said you have to realize that 90 at, at least 96% of the time and i don't care what furniture it is these disputes are not only completely automated and handled by computers with no human intervention whatsoever most of them, with the exception of Equifax, because they have their own uh, system here in the United States, but on top of the fact that they're handled by computers only and no people, they are routed outside the United States to third world countries like Pakistan where the people on the other end, even if they did actually look at the dispute, don't read or speak English. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are they, they, they only know one thing. They're trained to enter, hit certain buttons, and enter stuff into a computer. And if if a human being actually compares the data between what's showing in a credit report and what they sent to the CRA, that's all they're going to do. Yep, yep, it matches. Verified. Okay, that makes sense. Right. So what are you left with? The plain and simple fact is it's the data itself that you are disputing. Not whether or not you're really a, that you're really you, that that's your credit report, or that that's your address. 
or that that's your name. You are disputing that the data connected with you, your name, and your address is wrong. And a lot of courts have failed to see that. They'll accept this crap from debt buyers and say, well, you know, that's what's in their file. Therefore, it's verified. No, I didn't dispute whether or not that's what they sent to the credit report. I disputed what they sent to the credit report. That is inaccurate. They did not verify that. Got it. No, okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's a lot. That brings a lot of clarification. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Okay, thank you, guys. Okay, that's... I'm glad we got that clarified for you. You know, and, and you know what just happened here, everybody, is a perfect example of exactly what these calls are for. Because, like this gentleman said, He's been over the webinars time and time and time again, but he still had that question. He needed that clarification, and now he has that. So um, this is the value of studying in the website. Don't don't think that you can listen to just a bunch of these people talk on these calls and get these bits and pieces, questions and answers and think that you've learned this stuff, that you don't have to be a member of the website, that you don't have to get in there and study you're setting yourself up for failure. You're going to learn just enough to be dangerous to yourself and probably have a bad result. <clears throat> it's, it's very inexpensive to be a member of the site, but the information is organized. It's comprehensive. There is a lot of it. Just like Nathan was saying earlier, there's a lot of information there, but like I said, don't try and eat the elephant in one bite. Go to the section that pertains to your specific situation. Study there. Then when you have questions like this gentleman had, come on these calls, and we can help clarify this stuff for you. So Right. And you uh, know what, Dave? If, if, if you don't mind, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about something that was brought to my attention earlier today because it ties in with what we were just talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and this is for everybody's benefit. Now, most of the members and the listeners on this call, you are well aware of the standard that I was able to get precedent set on at the 11th Circuit in regard to debt buyers and their quote-unquote by the judge in the 11th Circuit, their worthless records, crap on a spreadsheet. Okay, the 11th has taken a very strong opinion stand on that that applies to all debt buyers, not just Midland and Encore, okay? And it's Hinkle versus Midland, that's how you find it, and the 11th Circuit. Uh, the oral argument is on Jeff's website, which is voidjudgments.net, and uh, the, you can get the... Uh, documentation, the, the court ruling from the 11th Circuit directly off the docket at the 11th Circuit and everything else pertaining to the federal case at the Southern District of Georgia. Um, everything's been recapped, including the documents at the appellate level 
So no excuse for not going and getting that. Okay, that said, the case is very well known now and being cited all over the country. However, it's come to my attention that consumer attorneys, which are, you know, who are ordinarily really good guys who are really trying hard for their clients, and I am specifically speaking about two of them that I know of in Florida right now, and both of these attorneys are the good guys. They really do care. They really do try to do a good job for their clients, etc. But they are miles, I'm more than miles, miles and miles and miles behind us on the learning curve for only one reason, and that is that they've been doing what they do for a very long time, and they are stuck in a rut and only have an understanding that fits that rut of the FDCPA, the FCRA, or the TCPA. Now, this one particular lawyer in Florida has been, uh, as of last year, I know for a fact that he had over 800 cases that he had filed against uh, or or that he had defended against. These are consumer attorneys that people go to for help when they get sued. Uh, A portfolio recovery. And he had won every single one of them. Okay? The other attorney is an associate of his. And he was really on a roll. Why? Because portfolio, in Florida at least, when they were filing all these state cases, they were filing it on zero balance. And why, I have no idea. Anyway, based on that, these lawyers were getting these cases thrown out with prejudice and countersuing and winning, and they were really on a roll. Well, apparently, the state of Florida passed some kind of amendment to their, uh, I don't know if it's the, what do you call their state statute? FCCPA. Yeah, the FCCPA. Okay. That allows them, if if they lose, at the state court level because of pleading the zero balance after they lose they are now allowed to go back in reopen it and amend their complaint that's double jeopardy yeah no shit (laughs) but you know Florida has done it so now this lawyer who has been so successful for so long um, whooping the hell out of at a portfolio specifically. Both these lawyers really hate that particular company because apparently they're more active in southern Florida than Midland is. They're like Midland is in Georgia, you know. And um, all of a sudden, he's losing all his cases. Why? He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't, you know, he thinks, okay, if they get to go back and amend the complaint 
and he tried fighting back, they would amend the complaint, and they would start with an amount, and they would show whatever uh, crap they got in the spreadsheet. You know how they do. They just put that on a blank piece of paper, that information that came off the spreadsheet, present that to the court, and this court keeps saying, well, that's evidence that you owe the debt. And they even are have filed a notice for judicial notice of the CFPB's ruling, uh, consent decree, and stipulated agreement against portfolio of 2015, and the court is not paying, not giving it any attention at all. The court doesn't want to hear it. The court says, "Well, you know, this information here—that's you, that's your name, that's your address, that's your phone number, that's your social security number. That's evidence. You owe the debt. That's it. You lose." Okay, and they're and they're getting their butts kicked. Okay, and <laughs> what I said to the person I had the conversation with this afternoon. I said, oh, my God, the, when the game changes like it has in Florida because the state amends something stupidly, you know, and then all of a sudden everything you've been doing doesn't work anymore, all that means is you have to change your game. They get to change their game, so you have to change your game. And the court is absolutely 100% wrong in saying that's evidence, the debt is yours, and you owe it. Why? And everybody should be able to answer this question. Why is that wrong? Because there's nothing there that supports the debt that they're claiming ever existed in the first place. No account-level documentation. The 11th Circuit is on the side of the consumer lawyer. The 11th Circuit has said so. The 11th Circuit has said, no, that doesn't get it. Your worthless spreadsheet records are not good enough to prove anything. Where is the account level documentation? In fact, in the oral argument, the judge actually says to the lawyer on the other side in my case, so if you buy a spreadsheet with not my name and address and, and, and an account in there, on that spreadsheet, are you going to do the same thing to me that you did to Hinkle? And the judge actually said that. So they're missing it. We've got a real problem here. The consumer attorneys are not understanding either. Now, I know these two lawyers know about my case, and they have read the ruling. But it's just like we tell everybody else. You don't just go read something once and say, oh, yeah, that's great. That's really good for the people, blah, 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 and then forget all about it. 
you got to read it and read it and read it and read it and memorize it and read it and read it backwards over and over and over again because they have missed that all they need to reverse what this court is doing is right there at the 11th. And all they need to do is file an appeal or put in a notice of appeal. And I'm telling you, portfolio is not going to go there after what the court ruled against Midland. But the lawyers are missing it. So we have to make sure that they don't miss it. There's nothing wrong with hiring an attorney if you don't feel that you can you're not at the level of education that you can handle the case on your own when you're being sued by somebody like Portfolio. There's nothing wrong with going and finding an attorney. But you know what I would ask under those circumstances? If I got sued by any debt buyer, or a debt collector for that matter, because they've got to verify as well and validate, but if I were um, being sued and I needed an attorney, the first thing I would, when I go around shopping for an attorney to hire, I would ask them, do you, especially if they're in the 11th Circuit, <laughs> Florida, Alabama, Georgia, I would ask them point blank, are you familiar with Hinkle versus Midland and its ramifications and importance in relation to my case. And if the answer is no, go on, don't waste your time. Keep shopping for another attorney. Keep finding another attorney. If the answer is, oh, yes, I'm familiar with that, then your next question is, how do you intend to use that ruling in relation to my case? if I retain you. And if they can't answer exactly what they're going to do, if they don't understand clearly that the 11th Circuit is on your side, then again, keep shopping for an attorney. If they're honest enough to say, and some attorneys are going to say, you know, I'm aware of that, I read the ruling, but it's been a while, and I'd have to review it. If they're honest and they say they haven't drilled down into it, now you know that this is somebody you could potentially work with. And, I, yeah, and let me throw right in here, sorry to interrupt, Terry, but you can tell them, you know, I can put you on the phone with Terry Hinkle to answer all your questions regarding that whole case. And you know what? Anybody sends me an email and has an attorney that wants to discuss that with me, I will give you my number in a heartbeat. Well, they can come on these calls. Right. If the lawyer's willing, definitely. Yeah, if the lawyer's willing. Heck yes. Right, but I will have personal conversations with them uh-huh. if they want to call me any time, okay? But yeah, I started to say, what was I going to say? 
<clears throat> oh, and the reason I just said what I said about shopping around for an attorney um, is because there's no possible way that an attorney, no matter how good they are or what their track record is, can represent you to the best uh, ability, you know, if they don't see the case and the issues through your eyes. Because so many times I have told everybody, your number one job, the only job you have when you do this stuff is to get the court to see the case through your eyes. And if you're using an attorney, you don't get to talk to the court. So how are you going to make the court see the case through your eyes if your attorney doesn't or can't? And if that attorney doesn't understand that your view is of paramount importance, then how can you work with them? They will never be able to represent your story, your case, as it happened to you, if they are not willing to get into your head, let you explain, let you show them why you are right and the other side is wrong. So anyway, I I just became aware of that and I was I was very disappointed because I know that these two attorneys that I've been talking about are the good guys. But we all have to realize one of the advantages for us not being an attorney, thank God we're not, um, is that that gives us the luxury, if you will, of having the time to study and tear things down word by word, paragraph by paragraph, and think about it and strategize and discuss and brainstorm and all the things that we do on these calls. Attorneys can't do that. Even if you get someone as wonderful as Craig, they have a calendar, they have a business to run, employees to pay, a nut to meet every month, and they have, if they're good attorneys, dozens of cases on their calendar. You're not the only one. In your life, your case is all there is. And it's of paramount importance to you. But in that attorney's life, it can't be. He's got to make a living. Okay? So even if he wants to, and Craig would love to have the time to do what we do. And he does better than most, I'll give him that, for the time that he does manage to to put to study and... and uh, strategizing, etc. But you cannot expect a lawyer to have the time to do 
the research that you should be doing for them because you know more than they do to start with when you go looking for one. If you're part of this group, you already know more than the attorney you're going to interview. So make sure that that attorney, if you choose to work with them, is open to sharing some of that knowledge that you can provide. So that's what I wanted to talk about, Dave. No, that's good information, Terry. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. It's, uh, uh, you know, we people think, oh, well, you know, go get a lawyer and, you know, let them take care of it. Uh, the reality is it's just not that easy, guys. Um, well, not once, only that. But once it, in a while it can be, but uh, it, for you to count on that and think that you're going to have a good result on that uh, without you doing anything, no contribution on your part, you're only kidding yourself. The, and the other thing is, and I forgot to mention, these two lawyers, they made a mistake, um, and I'm surprised Dave or John didn't jump up and, and notice it already. I did say that they each put in a motion for judicial notice on the CFPB consent decrees, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not enough, guys. You have to motion for the court to take judicial notice of it, and then you have to argue it. You have to, at some point in your pleadings, whether that be... Um, fighting against a motion for summary judgment or actually at trial, you have forced the court to take judicial notice of it. You have gotten it on the docket, but why did you get it on the docket? Just so it can sit there and the court can ignore it because that's what they're doing. They're not even reading it. Well, the the problem was the lawyers didn't truly understand what those meant. You know, there's another aspect to it that they're not doing Mm. that we do. The best defense is a good offense. You file a federal lawsuit against them immediately. And they're not doing that because that... They don't understand the grounds for it. But here again, that's one of the things that we do that they are not doing, whether they understand it, don't understand it, they're not doing it. That's the thing. And you hear us talk all the time on these calls. If you've been on these calls at all, you, you've heard us talk about if you get sued in state court over a debt, the best thing that you can do to start out with is turn around and file a federal lawsuit against them because somewhere in the process of them trying to collect that debt, they have violated the FDCPA. And that becomes a bargaining chip, and it becomes something that's very expensive to them on the other side. And they don't like to deal with it. So, um, you know, here again, it's just because somebody's an attorney and just because they've, they've had a bunch of good results in the past doesn't mean they can sit back on their laurels and expect to have the same success long-term going forward. The other side changes. It, that should be a wake-up call to them to uh, say, wait a minute, we've got to do things differently. And here we are, guys, a group of pro se litigants out here that's one-upping them. 
and our well, knowledge. If you remember what happened immediately after the ruling came down in the 11th, in the industry, uh, the lawyers in the industry, the good guy lawyers, the consumer attorneys. You know, at a conference. Well, and the, there was squawking all over the place mm-hmm. about how bad this ruling was for them because it was going to lessen the amount of cases that were walking in through their office doors, okay? And we're talking consumer defense attorneys, those that you go to when you get sued by Midland, right? Well, my ruling was going to result in, at least for a while, in a lot fewer lawsuits being filed against consumers, and therefore it was going to hit them in the pocket um, because they weren't going to have the, the consumers walking through the door. And the smart ones, though, they saw how it was going to empower them and how it was uh, ammo in their arsenal. The smart ones saw that, okay, we've been playing defense for years and years and years and making our living off it. All this means is now it's time to switch gears and play offense. And that the smart attorneys got it, but a lot of them didn't because they are so dug into that rut of doing what they do, not deviating from it, cookie-cutter pleadings, cookie-cutter answers, cookie-cutter settlements, it day in, day out, like an assembly line. But the ones that were worth their salt, they got busy and figured out it's a new game in town. Now we play offense. Yep. All right, well, we got some more callers here, so we're going to go on to... North Central Texas. You've been unmuted. Go ahead. Okay, okay thank you. Um, the challenge that I'm having, I talked to you guys before. Um, I had a motion um, uh, for summer judge, judgment hearing, but however, I had to go out of state uh, for a second opinion, um, medical reasons. And um, I sent in a motion for continuance, and I kept calling the attorney's office, and they never, never got back with me. And the judge on that Friday, she was going to be out of town, so she couldn't hear a hearing. So when I, I just got back, and uh, what they did, they went ahead, and she issued a motion for summary judgment. So now I want to know, what, what, what are my options? Can I do a motion for reconsideration? I believe you could on that. You you said you tried to get an extension because you were going to be gone. Yes, I did a motion for continuance. Yes, I did. And and you stated the reasons for it. That yes, Mm -hmm. I I put in there. It wasn't you know anything to delay. It was medical reasons, and I did all of that. And uh, they never. um, I mean, Zicker Zicker and Associates. They never um, did a hearing. You know, they never did a hearing for my motion for continuance. You mean the court didn't rule on your motion? Yes. Yeah, that's something wrong there. Yeah. State court. That's state court. court. 
State court, you don't. Where I am, you have to motion for the hearing. I did do a motion. No, not the motion for continuance. A motion for a hearing on the motion hearing. for continuance. Did you understand what I just said? A motion for, okay. Okay, you put in a motion for continuance. Then you have to put in a motion for a hearing on your motion for continuance. Okay. I didn't do a motion for a but hearing. But, you know, like, it, like John just said, that's required where he is. We don't right. know if that's required where you are. That will be in the rules. Or you could actually call the clerk and ask. I know she was very nice because she told me that, uh, you know, she had tried to call the attorney's office herself. But she told me, she said, you don't worry. She said, uh, you know, she said, you're going to have 30 days to do another motion. And she said, that's what you need to do. Well, you need to you need to do a a motion for uh, reconsideration that you were denied due process. Okay. How much time did you ask for in your continuance? Oh, I told them when I'll be back in town after after my second opinion, I'll be back on I'll be back after July the eleventh. And when was the summary judgment rendered? On July, uh, on July 3rd. Ooh. Yeah, you put in a motion. It's a denial of due process. It, you know, and and if it if it came down to having to set the motion for hearing on the previous motion, you can just say you had to go for medical medical reasons. You did what you could. The court was apprised, and the court, you know, you weren't treated fairly. And if that doesn't work, you can appeal it. Right. Okay. And I have my certified copies, and I'm going to attach all of that that I sent them with the um, letting them know with the motion for continuance. I, I, but more I importantly, everyone. have you sued Zwicker? Have I sued them? Yeah. No. Oh, man, they pay. Yeah, you sue them, they'll pay you. Okay. You can sue them, you can sue the attorney, you can sue the law firm. It's with the attorney's probably a Zwicker lawyer, right? Why? Yeah, because they have an office there. But you can still sue the you can still sue the lawyer that handled the case, and you can sue Zwicker. Well, see, that's the thing. You know, they have so many different, you know, you get something from them, and one time you may get something that's a different lawyer's name on it, and then the next two months it may be another lawyer's name. But you want to know something? That's good, because yeah. you can sue each one of those lawyers, and it's $1,000 a pop. Okay. Okay. So what? You're a member of the website, right? right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you just got to dig in there on, you know, uh, <laughs> taking them to town. Taking their money section. Yep. They're, they're they're an easy they're they're a firm that pays. They they buy junk debt. 
They have lawyer, you know, they're posing as a law firm. Um, they get in like in my state, they don't have a real office. They get rental lawyers to represent them and um, and pretend like they're working for Zwicker and uh, they pay up. Okay. So if you can, if you can, if you can do your motion for reconsideration with the understanding if it's not granted or whatever, you're going to do a notice of appeal. It's going to start costing them more. It's going to kick the can down the road. In the meantime, you file a federal lawsuit against them, a properly pled one against Wicker and each one of the attorneys that has filed a filed a, a motion or something into the court and or is handling the case or has sent you a letter related to that. As long as they're a lawyer, you can sue them all, and you know they'll they'll want to settle with you. They'll want to settle because they don't want to see people beating them in the docket. Okay. 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 Do you think they buy American Express debt or? Absolutely, they're one of the number one. I didn't say it first, but I can tell you. From personal experience, they buy American Express, and I know several other people that regularly participate in our calls that, you know, if you, they'd all be chuckling in the background. Oh, yeah, Zwicker, American Express, okay. pennies on the dollar. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, well, I'll do that and get that out this week. Are they representing, uh, are they making it like they're representing American Express? Yes. Yeah, that's the way they do it here in Texas. Have you have you sent them a debt validation letter? Yes, I did all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you sent a letter to Have you sent a debt validation letter to American Express? Ah, uh, yes. What did they come back with? A bunch of bills. Since Wicker was involved. Yes. Really. Mm-hmm. Because in my case, I I sent them one, and they came back and said I didn't owe them anything. But American Express has offices in in Texas, so. Matter of fact, um, this case has been going on for a while, and uh, matter of fact, I made maybe about three months ago. I know I had not requested because um, I requested a debt validation letter from American Express like last year, and they sent me, you know, the bills, just just a bunch of bills. And so at least only in the last couple of months, I got something from American Express saying put my request. They wish uh-huh. they just, And I'm saying I haven't requested anything, so I just thought that was weird too. And which, you know, was it American Express travel-related services or American Express Centurion Bank or American, American Express American FSB? Express. FSB. Mm-hmm. But FSB. the alleged, the alleged account. Who who does it say on the bills? American Express. I think it's American Express FSB. I would have to verify that. Yeah, you you, you got to look at those things closely because um, who was the alleged original account with, and who's sending you bills? Okay. Because if they've transferred it between their own companies, they can be construed as a debt collector. Okay, I would double check that. But you can absolutely sue Zwicker. Okay. 
Had you had anyone else tried to collect before Zorker? No. No dunning notices or anything? No. Uh-huh. And how big is the alleged balance? It's just the thing. It's small. It's under. It's, it's right at it's right at two, two thousand. Well, I tell you what, America Express wouldn't even fool around with trying to collect on that. They're going to sell it off. And that's what they have with Booker, right? That's what I would assume. I don't believe American Express would sue on that amount. No. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's small. It's really small. Well, that's the thing. You see, if you got three lawyers plus Zwicker, that's four thousand dollars right there. They they're going to try to make the whole thing go away, and they aren't going to want to deal with a an appeal. If if you know if you go in and do your your motion like you're talking about, that's going to take a month or so to go. And and this time when you do it, set it for hearing so the judge doesn't rule on it um, ex parte, you know, or sua sponte on her own. Just you know, get your motion in there. That's going to give you time to file a federal lawsuit. And then if they see an appeal coming, they aren't going to want to spend the money on an appeal. Okay. Yeah, that federal lawsuit against them is a huge lever to use against them to get them to go away. Okay. That costs them far more than they can begin to make by trying to collect that. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll do that. I get that. I'll I'll do that. All right. That take care of your questions. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys, and um, I'll get on that this week and. If I have any questions, I'll come back on Monday. Okay. We'll be here. Okay, and and we'll be on Terry's call Thursday night if you got any questions then. I said, you know, I was looking. I, what, is, what is that number? What? Uh, okay, I used to get emails. I don't, I don't send those, the reminders anymore, because the time never changes and the number never changes. And okay, I so have very, very... Okay, because I got on there Wednesday, last week, Wednesday, and... Uh, I don't have it on Wednesday anymore. It's on Thursday. Okay, that's... Okay. Same same time, same number, just on Thursday night. Okay, got Okay, so, okay, thank you. I have All very, right. very limited Internet, so I only send out the reminders to very new people. Everybody needs to write down the info because it's... You know, it's on Thursday night, but it's the same number every week, same pin, nothing changes. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you all. All right. Thank you. All right. We are going to go to Northeast Ohio. I had to mute you and unmute you. Go ahead. Yeah. uh, I'm dealing with a credit card of Bank of America, and I sent out my... Um, debt validation letters to them. And I sent it to Bank of America and the attorney. And I received uh, the plaintiff's motion, a summary judgment. And uh, in part of this, what it's saying is 
they got somebody from Banna to Exhibit A, Plaintiff's Affidavit, that I'm over the age of 18 and competent in that. Banna is a wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America, and they're saying that everything was done correctly and that they reviewed the records and conducted business activity in Europe at the time of the events purported to describe within. Can I say, or do they, am I under the impression that they're thinking that this is legitimate? Well, of course they're under the, the impression that they think it's legitimate or they wouldn't be doing it. That's what, they do that crap all the time. So it isn't. Because I don't see anything, you know, any any um, arithmetic done um, where it's validated to me, what no, I think. No, I'm going you're, you're, that. You're, you're not understanding the process. You've gone th- much further down the line with this thing that you're at a, uh, a summary judgment stage uh, in dealing with this. Have you done discovery? Nope. Well, that's... It's stuff like that that you need to do when uh, you get sued. When you get sued, you can't just sit there and be a sitting duck. You have to be proactive. The first thing you got to do is you got to go after them and make them prove up the debt with evidence. You do that through discovery. You can see about doing a deposition. You can file a federal, and should, not can, but should file a federal lawsuit against them, mm-hmm. against the uh, uh, attorneys trying to collect it. Just like we were talking with the uh, the lady previously there, uh, you can't just sit back and, and let that, pro, uh, that process move along like that. Uh, you have evidently got yourself in kind of a, a, a corner. Well, you got yourself in a corner because you're down at summary judgment stage and you're going to have a harder time arguing things because you don't have the uh, the evidence you need or the uh, sh- the ability to show that they don't have the evidence that you requested in discovery. Okay. Um, you know, well, my, in the website, the, the uh, beating credit card section covers all this stuff, and then uh, you go into the uh, taking their money section, and, and that's where you learn how to go after them and file a federal lawsuit against them. And you need to do that very early on after a lawsuit is filed against you. You can't wait. You know, mm-hmm. we have too many people, unfortunately, that procrastinate. You know, well, you know, I'm, I'm you know, thinking what I'm going to do about, you know, they sued me and this and that and then, you can't sit and wait. You have to formulate your federal lawsuit. First of all, you have to determine, okay, in what they've done so far up to that point in trying to collect the debt, where did they violate the FDCPA? Because they did violate it somewhere. They they can't they, they virtually can't come around and try and collect the debt without uh, violating the FDCPA in some way. You determine how they've done that, and then you sue them. Because all of a sudden, you're sitting there with a great big croquet mallet in your hand saying, I'm going to smash you right between the eyes and the forehead with this federal lawsuit. And it's going to cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. Now, 
do you want to talk turkey and make this go away, or do you want me to proceed and hit you? That's the essence of what you're doing when you file a federal lawsuit against these people. But you can't just sit back and go, geez, well, um, I don't know, you know, oh, they, they don't have any proof of this or that. You, you know, they, you, can't, you can't approach things that way because you, you, you basically put yourself in a sitting duck situation. I can still go out and file a, uh, a federal lawsuit on them. You can now, and the thing, and the time to do that is before they get a judgment against you, because the problem you run into is when people wait until after they get a judgment, then the other side argues res uh, res judicata Rooker Feldman. Okay, when in reality it's not. And the reason it's not is because when you bring an FDCPA lawsuit, that is over their uh, uh, violations of the law in connection with the collection of the debt. It's got nothing to do with the debt, but they will always argue that it is. They try and use the smoke and mirrors to make it about the debt. And unfortunately, there's too many of these state court judges that buy into that crap and they argue it, and even some of the federal court judges, and they'll dismiss these cases. Okay. So it's it's very important to uh, uh, determine where the violations are and what the you know look at the paperwork that you've uh, gotten from them, when you got things, where the violations occurred, did they misrepresent the amount and character of the debt? Did they do this? Did they do that? And you can use the frequently violated FDCPA guidelines, which are in the website. All you got to do is do a search for those, and you can find those and uh, determine where the violations are, but get that federal lawsuit filed before they get a summary judgment. Because once they get it, it turns into a whole different ballgame. Okay, now I want to make up this, um, the federal lawsuit, but in, uh, in the beginning... Anywhere before I start that, I wanted to see if I could stop this and try to strike the motion for summary judgment. You're not going to. You can't strike a motion for summary judgment. There is no provision to strike it. It's either you can argue it, you can do an opposition to it, and the court will either deny it or grant it, but it cannot be stricken. Okay. So I I got a word at that. I'm going to. Um, all you can do is oppose it, but you're you're going to have if you didn't do any discovery, you you got a tough road to to run uh, against them with that uh, affidavit because you don't have anything other than so to speak your own opinion to uh, to back up what you're uh, going to say in your opposition. You can't point to any evidence that you obtained, you know, where you asked them, you know, the, you know, please provide such and such and so and so, and they say we do not have that. Oh, well, that would have been evidence of the debt, you know. You could point to that and say, well, you know, they uh, uh, defendant requested uh, uh, in interrogatories that they provide a, a, a copy of the uh, uh, signed agreement uh, and. Uh, here the uh, uh, plaintiff responded with, uh, uh, no, that information uh, is not available. 
well, you know, if they don't have proof of an agreement, uh, then how can they have a contract? And that's something you can point out. And what it does is it creates an issue of material fact, which prevents the court from granting summary judgment and would force it to a jury trial. But it also pushes things back that gives you more time for the uh, uh, working with a federal lawsuit. But where you are right now, um, my best suggestion is get a federal lawsuit filed like uh, 20 minutes from now, (laughs) if there was a way you could do that. In other words, you can't do it too soon. Yeah, okay. I did some of that, uh, what I was requesting in my debt validation. Yeah, I asked. You, you. That's not the place to do it. That's not something that's admissible in court. Okay. Well, that yeah, was see, nice. debt validation. You know, it, it, this is another thing. We might as well touch on this real quick here. Some people have the impression that you can ask for all sorts of things in a debt validation letter. Well, the reality is they don't have to provide all that stuff. They have to provide evidence, competent evidence of the debt to validate what they say is owed. And if they don't do that, then they have not validated the debt. You know, some people like to send a, a whole laundry list. Well, you need to send this and this and this and this and this. You can't do that. They don't have the 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 point is they don't have to respond to it. So uh, when when you get in that kind of position, it, it's useless to do that. It, it's basically you you can for the most part do a debt validation letter saying uh, I dispute this debt, please validate this debt. Uh, yours truly, Joe Blow. Simple as that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the, the thing is, when, like when, when you make those when you make those requests in a, in a debt validation letter that does not become any kind of evidence that you can enter in uh, into the court uh, when they don't provide it. You, you know, you can't go into the court in, in arguing a summary judgment and say, well, you know, I requested this and this and this and this. Well, did you request that in discovery? Did, did you, uh, what were the discovery responses? Well, I didn't do it in discovery. I did it in my validation letter. Well, that doesn't count. I mean, that's literally what the court's going to tell you. Okay. Good info. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just a matter of understanding the processes, and that's that's one of the things that uh, you know we we keep talking to people about is you have to understand the rules and and understand the process, and because if you don't and you don't follow the process and you don't follow the rules, the, the court can't. The court first of all won't, but they can't rule in your favor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, all right. Federal well, lawsuit. Thanks. Federal lawsuit is the best thing I can tell you at this point. And do you do you have the federal lawsuit? Some of them, like something I could read over, or what's there's the best there, there's all sorts of stuff to uh, the basic format on doing a uh, uh, a lawsuit. We did the uh, SummerSlam webinar, webinar series that was on an FCRA claim. All you got to do is change the uh, the claims and stuff for FDCPA. Uh, but uh, uh, the uh, SummerSlam explaining how to go about properly writing the lawsuit and everything is right in the website. 
Okay. It's a, it's a series of them. I did those, oh, my God, what, four or five years ago. All right. Right. Well, thanks, and Dave. There's and there's one last thing with that. When, you, when you're writing your lawsuit, you're going to struggle if it's your first one wondering if it's correct and perfect. If you can hit all the right buttons on it, that's great, and get it filed. And, and within the 21 days, the opposition has to file a motion to, to dismiss or an answer. You can amend your you can amend your complaint once as a matter of course. Okay, which it buys you a little can, bit of time, but again, right. it, it, it you've got about two and a half weeks to buff it up, right, <laughs> and file it right. again, right. And it doesn't cost you anything to amend it, right. Okay, but you got to right. get the basic information to spook them. You got to get the basic information in there when you file it and and serve them right away so that they know about it and that's what's going to scare them off and you can sue the company the debt collector and the attorney and the law firm. Okay. I think I see 3 of them on here or at least 3 or 4. Well, just because their names are on letterhead or something like that doesn't matter. It's the the person that signs the paperwork. Yeah. Like oh, if boy. you got two different attorneys, like if you got ABC law firm and then you have attorney Joe Blow and then attorney Tom Smith that signs things, you can sue all three of them. Okay, cuz the one I can't even they they got it marked as blocks and then they put this one Chris and I can't even read the the how they signed it but she signed the she scratched the block so I guess it's yeah if, if they have a like a list of names like that and then they put like a, a check mark or something by one and then they scribble something that's usually who whose name you know you can attribute the uh, them sending it well I've had it from there's another fellow's name right below it too now he signed one on it and uh, so there's two then that you can go after. Is that correct? Like I like I say, whoever whoever had their John Henry on a piece of paper, Joe Blow, Tom Smith, J- Susie Q, whatever their names are, plus the the firm, sue them all. As okay, it, I'm gonna. It's been said many times. Sue them all. Let God sort them out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna listen to this tomorrow a couple times. Okay, very good. Thanks. Okay, you bet. All right, we're going to go to Liberty 2. You have been unmuted. Go ahead. Are you, are you talking to me here? Just uh, you're the one I just unmuted, I believe. You just talked a little bit. No, no, you're, well, no, wait a minute. You're, no. you you got to be doer. That's right. Okay, I'm the Liberty Two was the next one on the board. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm here. So, okay, uh, let's okay. go to Liberty Two, and Doer will get to you. You'll be the last one tonight. All right. Okay. Uh, first of all, I've been out of the loop since last fall, so um, kind of keep that in the back of your mind here. So well, I'm welcome back. back. Oh, no problem. Um, first of all, I, I have a question here in a second, but. This is kind of a different question I'll start off with. Is We're looking at possibly moving in a couple of different places. One would actually be, well, for me, back around home, which was Chicagoland area, so Illinois. The other possibility would be New Jersey, 
or real close to Manhattan. And I'm just I'm curious sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really, really. I'll take <laughs> yeah. the Midwest before Joyce or any of that area up yeah, there any yeah, day of the yeah. week. I, I, I hear you. Um, well, anyway, currently we're in we're in Northwest Georgia, and of course the consumer protection laws in Georgia are you know are crappy. And that's my question. I'm just curious because I don't really remember like what's Illinois like or what is New Jersey like. Do you guys know anything off the top of your head? New Jersey can be a real pain in the neck from what uh, we, the kind of the experience we've we've got some of our students uh from New Jersey. They they can that can be a pretty onerous place to deal with things. Okay. State courts and stuff, yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh I know Illinois could be kind of a stinker too, at least Half, it depends on where you are in Illinois. We have some some members. I'm thinking of Brian, for instance, Dave. Yeah, he's up in Rockford been, near Chicago. Yeah, okay, yeah. he's been uh, very successful in Illinois. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 Now this is this is kind of the first thing I was really going to actually ask about was. Okay, so I'm in Northwest Georgia, and you know. One of our congressmen is Tom Graves, and you know I, I get these emails. I don't even know how I get them, but I don't usually pay attention to them. But I saw last Friday he sent out this email, and I just I don't even know why I even looked at it, but for some reason I did. And anyway, this one paragraph he says, you know, hey, last night the House Appropriations Committee passed my financial reform bill. It's uh, you know, and he kind of talks about a couple of things, but he says, and rein in the rogue Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I guess it's the, I guess it's the, the Graves Financial Reform Bill is, I guess, what it's being called. But uh, do you guys know anything about me? He mentions rein in the rogue Consumer Financial oh, Protection you, Bureau. Oh, you, you got some of those clowns that are trying to stop the CFPB from uh, helping consumers. Yep. Well, that's, that's what my initial thought is. What are you talking yeah. about? They actually seem like they're doing well. Of course, but you, you 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 got mostly Democrats out there that uh, are against that. And trying ain't getting. Yeah, then he's actually a Republican for that matter. But yeah. well, there's well, some Republicans that are too. I'll tell you yeah. what, all of the rhinos are not going to like it because yeah. it's raining in the the uh, corruption with the banks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, no, that's that's, a, that's not a good thing. What he's no, no, doing is not a good thing. What, that's why I was asking because I was like, in fact, I'm gonna. I've already had communication with him about something else, and I'm like, well, I guess I'll be sending another letter. Like, uh, I don't know what you think you're reining in. Are you reining in someone actually doing something versus yeah. most of these? You yeah. know, that's literally what it what what they're wanting to do is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so bad, be aware of bad that. news, bad a, news there. Unfortunately, yeah, not a good thing. Yep. Okay. Well, you, thanks a lot, guys. You have a good night. All right. Thank you. Okay, and we're going to go to our last caller for the night, which is Doer, and we got you unmuted. And go ahead with your question. All right. Uh, can Terry give us a case number so I can look it up on Pacer? Give you what now? A case number for her case, right? Yes. 
Oh. <laughs> I'll bet she has that memorized. No, actually, I don't. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's right. You're bad on numbers. (laughs) That's right. Numbers is something Terry doesn't do. That's like a foreign language to Terry. (laughs) But I can give it to you just a second. Let me (laughs) look on one of the docs. Oh, my God. That's funny. Yeah, that's really funny. With what you went through, you don't know the number of that case. Oh, my God. I tell you, you don't ask Terry about numbers ever. No. Oh, no. <laughs> I should know better than that. <laughs> I mean, can you won't... I'll be going, huh? That's a number. <laughs> okay, which one did you want? The appellate? Yes. The appeal, not the federal case. The appellate, yes. It's one to one. Oh, from the 11th. Okay, hold on a second. I mean, that's the one we would use as a site, I would think. Okay, that appellate number is... I got the wrong glasses on here. I can't even see it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Appeal number 15-10398-FF, as in Frank, double F. Okay. All right, great, thanks. You're uh, welcome. Not, not my question. Um, uh, I'm helping uh, Ray in Dallas uh, with a credit card for uh, Capital One. And we're, we got discovery. They sent uh, all the statements from the first uh, zero balance to the end. And uh, last time I talked to you, Dave, you said that that uh, comprises uh, verification. Is that right? The really, the, yeah. The, that's the way the court's going to look at that. Okay, but when Terry was explaining her thing, she was saying that there's no account level documentation. Now they can put down any numbers they want, and they can make a nice looking. Uh, statements and all, and I can do the same thing. So what's the difference? They they can have somebody testify that those were statements generated by Capital One, and it shows the entire account activity from the inception of the account to the current balance. Right. You're talking about an original creditor who, and the 11th was clear about that as well, uh, that's a big problem with the collectors and the buyers providing account-level documentation. They can't because they do not have and cannot have first-hand fact information. And a buyer um, can't go to the original creditor and get it. They get it when they buy it. It's like a used car, as is. Whatever comes with it and there ain't nothing else, you're out of luck, okay? But with an original creditor, they have access to all the original files, the original records, 
and the people who work for them, they can come up with a records keeper who can testify that those are the correct records made at or near the time of the transaction, blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's being provided by the original creditor. So the court's going to look at that and say, okay, well, they've shown everything from when the account was opened to the current point in time. Okay, how are you, how are you going to argue that? Um, well, I, that's what I was going to ask you because. Well, what I'll, is your argument? What is it that you are that you dispute about it? Who is it that you're disputing it with? Well, that, well, that's another question. But the, the point is that uh, they don't produce the original uh, uh, transaction slips. So it's just well, a, no, they can't. Only the merchant can do that. Right. So, so it, it, is it really validation? Well, it, it, the, the the way you got to look at it is, how is the court going to view it? Right. And the court is going to view it as validation. Yes, okay. they will. See, if 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 they started out, you know, if they provided eight statements and maybe the account was opened in 06, and maybe they uh, provided eight statements and the uh, the oldest statement had a beginning balance of $4,300 on it, and now it's 6400 that's owed, you can make arguments, well, where'd the $4,300 come from? You don't just get to start with $4,300 and say, now I owe a couple thousand more. Right. You, that's you can make those arguments, but when you have the original creditor, like Cap One, that itself is producing from square one all the way to current, that shows the court all the transactions that came in, and the courts the court's going to take that as evidence. I mean, okay. that's the reality of it. I mean, you know, sometimes you just got to look at the reality of it. Okay. Well, the other thing is, in in. Uh our interrogatories to them to ask for the name of the um, custodian of records, and they did not provide that. Name of the what? Custodian of records. They they have multiple. They can have any number of custodians of records. They can darn near pick anybody that works well, with their that computers. Department. Yep. Right. Okay. Uh, but still, if we're going to depose them, we need a name, right? Uh that's what you that's what you need to do. You're gonna uh have to uh <laughs> well, see what about getting is well, well present hang on, an hang affidavit of an supposed custodian of records. That's what they do. So then you have to challenge that and depose that person. Right. I was just gonna say, you've gotta once they say that they've got a custodian of records and they're saying, you know, Susie Q says these are true and correct uh uh, copies uh, of records made at or near the time of the transaction. Well, you've got to go depose Susie Q. Yep. Okay. Well, we never got that from Susie Q when they sent the uh, uh, 600 pages of statements. Well, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to ask you a question. When they send the 600 pages of statements or whatever the hell it was they sent you, they had to have sent a signature page, okay? At the end of all that, there had to be somebody signing for the company 
that these records are true and correct to the best of their knowledge and whoever that is. Well, no, no, wait a minute, Terry. If if they just asked for validation and they sent that, that you wouldn't oh, I have that. he was thing. talking about in a in discovery. This is uh, uh, all right. Um. Yeah. Okay. Here's the answer. Are you? It, 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 did they send you this stuff in response to your request in discovery? Yes. Okay. Then there has to be a page of whoever is from the company is testifying that those records are true and correct. That's going to be like the last page. And that person is the one that you challenge. Well, now, now Terry, hang on here a second. Those would be a response to a request for production. Right. Okay. The only one where there has to be a, a sworn uh, signature is on interrogatories. Right. So did you do interrogatories too? Yes. All right, then the, whoever it was that signed, there's going to be, it's probably the last page, whoever it is. In my case, they had two of them with the several rounds of discovery that we did. And so one of them was this guy named Patrick Minford. Now, Patrick Minford doesn't know anything about anything because he never even saw it, but he signed it anyway. And if I had deposed him, he wouldn't have been able to testify to anything first-hand fact knowledge. I didn't, because I couldn't at the time, but that is what you should do. So when you depose that person, whoever it is that's, that's representing the, the company on your interrogatories, then you introduce all that stuff that they gave you in, in, in production, and you ask them point, you ask that person, point blank about it. Are you familiar with this? And how is it you're familiar? Did you create these records? Did you enter these, this information into the, the um, account record on your company's computer? And so on and so forth. Okay. Um. Um, it, I remember when we had the conversation before, I suggested you look through the statements to see if there was any discrepancies, like uh, different account numbers, stuff like that. Have you done that? Right, right. and that's another issue. Uh, the account numbers are blacked out, so I have no idea. <laughs> the account numbers are blacked out. They redacted. Yeah, yep. well... The account numbers are well. How do you know that's those are statements related to anything related to that person? If the account numbers redacted. Well, well, that's a good argument. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 could be something that somebody just made up. And that is something that when when they give you that kind of stuff, you come right back at them and tell them this is not what I requested. This is incomplete data. I request, you know, you, to the attorney. You tell the attorney this response is um, insufficient, and 
I want it provided to me as it was asked for, unredacted. Okay, so uh, I do that before a motion to compel, right? Oh, absolutely. You have to confer with them. You have to give them the chance to fix it. Okay. And you make sure that you tell them, because I, I ran into that several times, and I had to get right down to saying, look, the judge already warned you not to do this, and you did it. And you not only did it, you went overboard with it. So are you going to fix it, or do I need to go back to the judge? Mm-hmm. Well, it got fixed real quick, pronto, next day. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the last page of the interrogatories, and it's saying, uh, I am the authorized agent for Capital One Bank, blah, blah, blah. I am the person making answers to the foregoing interrogatories. Uh, Answers are true and correct to the best of my knowledge. It's notarized. Uh, There's obviously a name there, Jenna something or other. Does it say what what her position with the company is? Authorized agent of plaintiff. (laughs) That doesn't mean that that she is a custodian of records or has any first-hand fact knowledge of anything. Right. Doesn't mean she's an employee. No, it doesn't. That's right. She says she's an agent. She could be a neighbor. Uh Uh-huh. She could be a secretary at the law firm. Yeah. Okay, um, that's a good point. So, I mean, uh, do I go back then again to the attorney and tell them I need uh, the information uh, for the interrogatories as well? If you object to anything in their answers to your interrogatories or their production of documents and information you have um, requested, then you've got to go to the attorney, tell them their response on numbers, such and such and such and such and such and such, whatever numbers they were, in the interrogatories and request for production numbers, eight, you know, 8, 9, 10, and 11, are insufficient and they need to be amended immediately. Okay. There's one other thing he can do. Mm, go ahead. If he's got a few, do you have do you have some money to throw at defending your lawsuit? Okay. Sir. Yes. Go ahead. Do you have some money that you can use to fight the lawsuit? Uh, well, that is a problem right now. Um, if. And that, that was another question I was going to ask. If we file a lawsuit in federal court, then even though uh, there's a home ownership involved, can we uh, file in for, 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 uh, form of operas? Yes, you can. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter what, what it's about. You have the right to apply for in form of operas. I, I, I have a question for you here, and I think this is a very important question to ask here based on our conversations. You said you're helping somebody. Yeah. You're not doing this on your own stuff, right? Right. Okay. The person that you are helping has to know what's going on and how to do this. You cannot yeah, do this for her. 
or him? Is it a her or a him? It's a he. Uh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I, I understand that, Dave. Um, and the the best I can do is to uh, uh, help along and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, try to, uh, uh, what do you call it, to tutor him as much as possible. And, and I understand it's it's up to him at, at that point, but but there's no other option, you know, because uh, he doesn't have $10,000 to throw at this thing right now. No, that's not oh. what I was talking about. What that's I was really trying to, what I was trying to get at is the most powerful thing you can do. Yes, you can, you know, go to the judge and try to get a motion to compel and everything. But since the the affidavit has a name on it, you want to set that person for video deposition deuces tecum and make them bring all the documents that they didn't give you in the other discovery and make them come and stand in front of a video camera and answer questions under oath. That's admissible at trial. Okay. Admissible for summary judgment too. Yeah, that would be, uh, I'm sure they have no firsthand knowledge. So, um, you could do that for probably under $500. You could have a quite extensive, you know, sit-down video deposition due to Steakham, like three or four hours for 500 bucks. Right. Now, if they're out of state, uh, that doesn't matter, right? That has to be well, done where they are. It has to be right. done where they are, but you can set them for video deposition, and they have to go into a uh, court reporter's office or someone uh, affiliated with the video company that you use, and you can be in your home place, and they are where they are, and they get deposed over electronic means. Happens right. all the time. But okay. what one of our what one of our friends found is when they went ahead to set the people for deposition, mm-hmm. they were they were unavailable or couldn't be found or weren't at the address they were served at. And then they can't come in to testify at a trial or a hearing. They can't appear at summary judgment if you tried to serve them process server was unable to serve them at the address that they said and the lawyer didn't produce them, then they can't testify. And that takes away the whole affidavit. Okay. So uh, you're saying that they cannot use any of the information in the interrogatories? No. If they've submitted an affidavit to support everything, Right. then you can't use that. If they've put the information in the interrogatories and they've properly signed the jurat at the end, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, but if they've properly signed it, then yes, that would not be admissible as evidence if you could not cross-examine them over the answers that they had. Okay. Um I'll have to I'll have to uh, get that clarified because I asked for the custodian of records. I asked for uh, a lot of things in the interrogatories, and it, I guess my concern is: uh, can those uh, issues be eliminated with the motion in limine if they 
if, if they if they're not going to uh, testify to them. You wouldn't need, if you do it the way I was saying. You wouldn't really need a motion to eliminate because you were denied the ability to examine the person who gave those answers. So you don't even know if that person really exists or if they're a fiction. But it also prevents them from showing up in court to testify because you need to have the the ability to examine them before you go to hearing, whether it's summary judgment or a trial. Right. You're entitled to that. And the two things, when you, if you're going to go this route, you can go for that specific person, and then you can also send another notice, uh, you know, a subpoena for uh, video deposition, ducis tecum, to a corporate representative. And you just call it corporate representative, and then they have to send someone that can answer those questions. If, you, if, you can't, if they can't answer anything, you can move for summary judgment. If they can't produce someone to answer the questions at a deposition, you can move for summary judgment to dismiss. Okay, so the corporate representative doesn't have to be named? You can see the corporation suing you. So you just want a representative of the corporation who is able to answer the questions. When you do the subpoena, you list the areas that they're going, the person has to testify about. And ducis tecum means bring it with you. You have a separate page that lists the items you want them to bring to the deposition with them. Then when they produce the items, they're photographed, they're, and, and the court reporter examines them, and they're put into the record as official. It's the same as you got them in a request for a production, but you got them during the deposition, the deuces tecum, bring it with you, part of the deposition. So right. you're framing the area the individual, the corporate representative has to testify to and the specific documents they have to bring with them. Now, if you've asked for documents that are overreaching or irrelevant to your case, then they may argue that you know they didn't have to bring them, but with with a with a deposition, they have to show up. If you set them for deposition, they have to show up. If they default and don't show up, then you can just say, hey, they weren't able to answer this, and that's the end of it, and it's on the record. You show up at the deposition, no party from the other side shows, the court reporter reports all that officially, and that's the end of it. And then you move for your summary judgment after that based on the record. And if they try to block going, what they usually do is say they're not available on this date, they're not available on that date. But if you give them enough advance notice, they have to produce someone. Okay. And it doesn't take that much advance notice. Okay, great. Uh, and I, I'm presuming that it would be somebody from their corporate headquarters. Not necessarily. Many times those companies send someone they call a corporate representative who is nothing more than a low-level person who all they do is fly around the country and testify on stuff. Hmm. That's good. You don't get someone from corporate headquarters. <laughs> so how the hell would they have knowledge if they're hired to fly around? They, uh, how? They know how to bullshit a judge. <laughs> okay. That's basically it. They buffalo people. They blow smoke up their ass. 
you know, they make it sound like this and that. But a good attorney can pick them, pick them to pieces and okay. discredit them. You have to discredit them first before you even go to the subject matter that they were supposed to testify to. Right. Discrediting them is, you know, about how how do you have this knowledge and how long have you worked for the company and what did you do there and what was your capacity and all this other stuff. It, it, when you can show that all they do is fly around and testify in court, they have no knowledge. Right. How, you know, did they input the information into the record? Because they've got to have first-hand fact knowledge of your account. Right. And they'll say that they reviewed the electronic records. Well, what does that mean? What system did you view it on? Where was it where, that you viewed it? What exactly did you view? Did you bring yeah. a copy? Yeah, what, what training have you had as, as to uh, understanding this, uh, the uh, system where this information is kept? Uh, uh, how is the information input? What are the security features? Who has access to it? Who has authorization to make changes? I mean, the, the list of things can be in the hundreds of questions. Okay. Now, do you have deposition questions on your website? Because I didn't see them there. No, those are all there's, going to be specific to each case. Right. Okay. And there's plenty of books out there on how to do depositions. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and final question here. Uh, how, how do I know that the attorney... Is not did not buy the debt and and is not representing Capital One. Well, you don't. <laughs> the way to the way to find that out, the way to find that out is through discovery, and you at you ask um, you ask the you ask Capital One because did you do discovery to Capital One? Yes. Okay, you ask Capital One if whatever the name of the law firm, is a real party in interest. Okay. In, in this I, lawsuit. In this lawsuit. In, yeah. I put in a motion uh, under Texas Rule 12 to uh, um, have proof of uh, authority. Right. And, yeah, and, I, I know and, what you're talking about on Rule 12. And, and they sent... Uh, an affidavit by some clerk or something saying that she has uh, knowledge and that they hired this law firm. So is that sufficient, do you think? Probably for the court. Who is the law firm involved? Moss out of Lubbock. Moss? Moss law firm, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it sounds like they have uh, uh, foreclosure, or what do you call it, debt mill, because... Uh, it's hard to get through their phone tree. There's a, there's, there's, we're always waiting 30 minutes or more just to get through their phone tree. Oh, my gosh. Uh, All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot. You've been extremely helpful. All righty. You're very welcome. Right. Okay. We're going to go ahead and wrap things up here. 
I uh, want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, John and Terry, for uh, your input. We we covered a lot of really good information tonight. This was a really good call tonight, and uh, we had more people on the call tonight uh, the last couple of weeks here now, uh, which is kind of interesting in the in the middle of summer. We uh, have actually been getting more people coming on the calls, which is great. Uh, I don't know whether it's because it's so blister and hot outside. A lot of people want to stay inside in the uh, <laughs> stuff or maybe uh they've gotten a lot of their vacation stuff out of the way but it's uh, it's good to see that we're uh we're getting uh, a little more participation because you know things wax and wane but uh anyway please 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 tell people that we're here tell people that there is help available for them they have to do it themselves but we're here to uh, assist them and and help them get the knowledge that they need to be able to help themselves because we don't have an advertising budget, guys. All right, now, tomorrow night, no call. Tomorrow's the off week for the Tuesday night calls. And then, of course, Terry won't have a call Wednesday night, but she's going to have a Wednesday call on Thursday night. That's the way she's doing things now. So uh, Terry's call, it used to be on Wednesday night. If you're used to that and you were uh, planning on tuning in, just wait a day. Wait exactly, precisely 24 hours and call that number and use the same pin and voila we'll be there that is unless one of us or more than one of us gets run over by a truck or drowned uh, out kayaking or something in the meantime <laughs> so uh anyway uh thanks to everybody have a great evening and those of you that come and uh join us on thursday's call we'll talk to you then good night thanks again terry john Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Good night, everybody.